Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, cassettes and vinyl from Jewish Morocco. People develop all sorts of obsessions about music. Some are crazy for bluegrass. Other people only listen to Afropop. Still others zero in on anything Latin and only Latin. Chris Silver's musical infatuation is rooted in Morocco. By day, Silver, who lives here in New York, directs a task force working on Arab-Israeli affairs. But in his free time, he runs a blog called Jewish Morocco, which over time has become something of an homage to the music of that place. He's joining us today on the podcast to talk about the history and unique characteristics of this music that he's taken such a shine to. Chris Silver, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. The music you collect and you put up on your site comes with all kinds of interesting history and backstories. But I was thinking that before we get into any of that, it might be fun just to dive right in with a song. Do you have a favorite we can start with? Yeah, I think we'll start uh, with a song about our hometown. Uh, it's called New York, Capital of America. Uh, it's by the great Sami al-Maghribi, uh, Sami the Moroccan in Arabic, uh, who I liken to sort of a Frank Sinatra character of uh, Morocco. Um, and he does this really fascinating thing where he's rhyming English loan words with Arabic. So he rhymes Brooklyn with every religion in uh, in Arabic, which is just fascinating. When was it recorded and why is he even singing about New York? So what we'll see over the next few minutes is that uh, these artists uh, placed a great emphasis on place uh, wherever they were living or wherever they visited. So uh, over the decades, they're singing about everywhere from rural Morocco to Casablanca to New York, which he visited in the 50s, to Haifa when they eventually moved to Israel. Um, and this was originally recorded in the 1950s on 78. Um, but this is actually a re-release from Israel in the 60s. Um, they basically, someone had brought that over with them uh, from Morocco to Israel, uh, given it to this more or less underground record label out of Jaffa, and they repressed it and resold it, and that's how we have it today. Let's listen. I love that. It's like a, a prayer. He reminds me so much of just kind of traditional um, cantorial music. It's like this invocation and longing. It's beautiful. It's, yeah, it, he got his first formal training in the synagogue. 
And the instruments, was that just a straight piano that he, that was being played? That's piano, um, and the pianist is actually still alive. Uh, it's someone named uh, Maurice Medioni, who's originally Algerian. Uh, and he's also, I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep on saying that they're one of the greats, but I mean, all of the people that we're going to hear today were unbelievable musicians. Uh, Medioni was sort of playing off of traditional Andalusian music, um, but a master pianist. Uh, he also incorporates at different points uh, cha-cha-cha and flamenco, and he, he loves boogie-woogie, <laughs> and he's still, he's still alive today. Oh, wow. You started your blog, Jewish Morocco, while you were traveling there in Morocco back in 2008, four years ago. What were you doing there? Uh, I was sort of living the dream. Uh, <laughs> I'd spent some time, about two months in Morocco in 2005. And uh, basically for anyone who's gone to Morocco, you know that you sort of get bit by the bug. Uh, it's a fascinating place and the Jewish history there is, is incredible. Uh, and I was there for about two months and I felt like I just scratched the surface. I never went south of Fez. Um, I saw sort of the usual sights, but in my mind, there was all this uh, tremendous history that was disappearing before our eyes. So Morocco, at its height, had a Jewish community of a quarter million people, 250,000, out of a population of about 8 million. So it was quite a Jewish place, if you think about it. Uh, and the historical Jewish heartland was south of Marrakesh, uh, up until the Sahara and sort of these uh, uh, places that people don't always get to travel to. And about 60 years ago, people started leaving in, in mass. Uh, and what they left behind were uh, sort of the artifacts of that community, synagogues, schools, cemeteries. And I couldn't find anything about these places either in uh, historical books or online. So I quit my job and decided to go to Morocco for four months to make sure that this history wasn't lost to time. So what does that mean? What did you actually do when you were there? What it looked like is I would wake up in the morning. Uh, I would be in a different uh, village or hamlet or small town every day, uh, a place where there used to be, let's say, 20 or 50 Jewish families. Uh, I would find the oldest man I could find in the village, and I would say that, you know, my family is from here, wherever I was, which they weren't. <laughs> uh, and uh, I would ask him to share his memories of uh, the Jewish community, uh, spend time with him, and basically using old photographs, uh, uh, memories that I could find that were scattered on the internet, uh, I would see if there was anything left. So when you were doing this, you would tell people you were from their village, but in fact, uh, do you have any ties to Morocco or to North Africa that are uh, biological? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, not that I know of. I happen to look like every other person in that country, but uh, my family is not from there. What ended up happening is because I blend in so well, uh, people assumed I was from Casablanca because my Arabic was so bad. That sort of, <laughs> I was from the big city because I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't make the sentence that they wanted to hear. Now, gradually, your blog, Jewish Morocco, came to focus more and more just on, on the music. How did that happen? So the last uh, long period of time I spent in Morocco was 2008. Um, I went back in 2009 over Passover for a follow-up uh, visit. 
And basically, at the end of my trip, I happened on this uh, record store in Casablanca that was basically frozen in time. I mean, you can imagine that not a lot of Moroccans are buying uh, old LPs and EPs. Um, they're listening to different music these days. But I walked in there and everyone played the part perfectly. So the salespeople in there had these bell-bottom pants and these lapels and these mustaches and parted hair. I mean, the 1970s were never ending as far <laughs> as they were concerned. And the store was filled with dead stock. I mean, it was records from the 1970s that had never been sold. They were in pristine condition. And so I asked uh, the salespeople to sort of show me around. I had started to get into vinyl and other things at that, at that point. Uh, and they started showing me some things. So they were showing me uh, Gnawa music from the South. So they would say, you know, this is uh, Mahmoud Ghania, uh, the greatest Gnawa musician out of Morocco. And, and here you go. And they would play it uh, in the store for me. Or Mohammed this or, or whatever it was. Uh, and towards the end of my time in that store, uh, the salesperson showed me a tape, a cassette tape by someone named Botbo, Haim Botbo. And he said, who are Yehudi? He's Jewish. And I wasn't sure why he shared that detail with me, but I, I played along and I bought every Botbo cassette I could find because I thought, who knew about these uh, Jewish musicians? And Botbo is not the only one. It's not just that there was one Jewish musician in Morocco. I thought I'd sort of found the tip of the iceberg and I brought that home and listened to it and it just blew me away. Um, so I sort of... I asked myself the question, what happened to these musicians post-North African independence movements? What happened when they ended up in Israel, in a, in a Hebrew-speaking milieu, and in a, a Hebrew-focused music industry? What happened to these folks? And that's what took me on this journey. I'd love to hear another song. What, why don't you choose one and tell us a little bit about it? Uh, so we're going to listen to a song written by Maurice Almadioni, the pianist I was telling you about. It's uh, sung by Lynn Monti, the Edith Piaf of Algeria. Gorgeous woman, gorgeous voice. Uh, it's called Anan Hebek, which means I love you. Uh, and this is one of the things that they sang about was love. Uh, and what you hear in this song is the rapid fire switching between French and North African Arabic. So what I always say is that if you know a little bit of French and if you know North African Arabic, you feel very smart listening to this song. <laughs> Oh, I love you. 
I'm just curious, what sets Jewish Moroccan music apart from Moroccan music generally of that era? Sometimes there is no difference. It, it's just that they were Jewish vocalists and their entire orchestra was Jewish as well. But what I think you hear often in it is that sort of uh, that synagogue training that a lot of these folks got from a very early age. And then also they're bringing in instruments that are sort of not traditionally North African. For example, on that last track, you hear accordion. I think what what the Jewish musicians were particularly adept at was being connected to this world where they heard other music, uh, again, flamenco, cha-cha-cha, whatever it was, and they incorporated that into Arabic pop music. And then along with their Muslim counterparts, created an entirely new genre of music in North Africa in the first half of the 20th century. And would these Jewish musicians and singers have appealed to a broad audience? They weren't just singing to Jew- Jewish audiences, were That's they? That's right. No, no, no. They were... North African Arabic speakers were listening to this music, whether it was performed by Jews or Muslims or, or neither. Um, so the audience for this music spanned all of North Africa and then the North African enclaves uh, in France and then Canada as well. I mean, this music made it around the world. Some of these other musicians uh, were performing at the greatest uh, venues in, in France um, up through the 70s and 80s. There was an audience that was sort of beyond certainly Jewish North Africans and even beyond North Africans in general. Morocco gained independence in the 1950s. What did that mean for the country's Jews? It's a great question. Um You know, Morocco has traditionally been a home to a number of different groups. You have Arabs and Berbers, you have Muslims and and Jews. Uh, Geographically, it's it's diverse. Um, And Moroccan independence sort of raised this question as to where is the Jewish place in independent Morocco um, as the country was Arabizing. Uh, what's interesting is that, you know, Israel's independence is 1948 and people stuck around. You still had 70,000 Jews in Morocco as of 1967. Tremendous community. Uh, Sami al-Maghribi, the first uh, musician we heard, um, he stayed until the late 1950s, uh, only then ending up in France. Uh, we're going to hear someone in a bit, Sheikh Mouijo from Meknes near Fez, only made it to Israel in 1962. Once many of these musicians actually did go to Israel, what did it mean for the music? Did their music gain its own sound, its own nuances in Israel, or did the subject matters change? It's sort of D, all of the above. They... <laughs> um, the subject matters changed in some ways. So um, they were always... These musicians were always singing about the most topical of subjects. You know, when uh, when they got to Israel, they started singing about kupat cholim and you know uh, healthcare in the co- in the country specifically. Um, they found a niche for themselves, and were not just singing at uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that, but were actually recording music. Some of it was exactly the same music that they were singing in North Africa or in Morocco. In other cases, they were slowly incorporating Hebrew into their lyrics. So the majority of a song would be in uh, Moroccan Judeo-Arabic, for example, and then the refrain would have Hebrew in it. Uh, and so they, they, slowly, uh, they slowly became accustomed to their new environment. Maybe we can hear an example of one of those songs. Sure. Um, this is, I would say, my all-time favorite musician. Uh, he was born Moshe Atias. Uh, 
uh, in Meknes in 1937. Uh, one of the things that Jews did was they would adopt these Arabic honorifics uh, that were a testament to their musical prowess. So they became known as sheikhs because they had mastered, let's say, a thousand songs. And uh, Moshe Atias, born in 1937, moves to Israel in 1962. Uh, his profession... You know, on his identity card that he gets when it's when he comes to Israel, his profession is listed as a military embroiderer. Back in Morocco, he would embroider military uniforms. In Israel, with their scaled-down uniforms, there was no need uh, for that profession. He sort of bummed around for a number of years doing different things. And the story as he tells it is he's sitting in a cafe in Haifa uh, in the late 1960s, and he starts singing. And he brings those around him to tears and a, a musical career in stardom is launched. <laughs> and he soon adopts uh, the moniker of Sheikh Muijo. Muijo is a nickname for Moshe. Uh, and Sheikh Muijo recorded his own music, uh, but he also uh, adapted uh, music that was originally from North Africa to Israel. So we're going to hear now is that same song by Lin Monti, Anan Hebek. Uh, but it's Sheikh Muijo's version. His voice is, is so distinct. And during the refrain, you're going to hear him incorporate uh, incorrect Hebrew lyrics. <laughs> أنا نحبك أنا أنا نعزك من عند ربي وش كنتي لي في قلبي أني أهيف أني أهيف وطيخ طفلي لموت من لحيوت بالعادي Chris, you bring so much knowledge and insight to this music, but you're not a musician and you're not an ethnomusicologist. Where does this uh, interest come from? Um... A few years ago, I was in a used record store in Cleveland, Ohio, and I picked up an old Bill Cosby comedy LP. And I, my father passed away about 10 years ago, but uh, I remembered him telling me that he was someone in the music industry. And I decided to pick up this LP and flip it over to see who was thanked, who the credits went out to. And there it was, executive producer Roy Silver. And so I said, wow, this was, this was something really real. Um, what's the story behind this? So I basically put some pieces together and I inherited my father's 
uh, record collection, reel-to-reel collection, masters, whatever it is, um, music that he produced, not necessarily that he favored or liked. Uh, my father is basically the most famous person you've never heard of. That's what I always say. He was Bob Dylan's first manager. Uh, he was Bill Cosby's first manager. Uh, him and Bill Cosby had a record label called Tetragrammaton, which is the unspoken name of God in the late 1960s. Uh, he did some really serious things in the music industry. He basically took these stories that were hard to sell in many ways uh, Bob Dylan being a Jewish kid out of Minnesota singing folk better than anybody else. Uh, Bill Cosby being a black comedian who just did straight comedy at a time when people were doing ethnic comedy. Um, he took these stories that I think were hard to tell and unexpected, and he made these musicians stars. And so he's got this story that I'll hopefully eventually tell on, uh, on tablet again. Um, but his story helped me to sort of get to the point where I can ask questions about music. Uh, and for me, I sort of discovered Moroccan music, uh, Moroccan Jewish music a few years ago. And because of some of the work I had done on my father's musical history, I was able to ask the right questions that led me in this direction. But you had no idea growing up that your father had uh, this uh, hand in, in the production of so many really important uh, cultural figures? When you're a young guy, you don't know who everybody is, you know, that he discovered Mama Cass. Wow. Mama Cass, of course, being from the Mamas and the Papas. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't know who Mama Cass was, right? You know, when you're six or seven years old, um, I don't know that you have a deep knowledge of sort of uh, folk and pop uh, history in this country. Um, and I don't know if I would have been able to appreciate it necessarily. Um, I think it's only now that I can listen to Bill Cosby doing comedy and say that's brilliant and great. Chris, beyond the blog, do you have aspirations for this music that you're collecting? In some ways, it's sort of mission accomplished already um, because I'm connecting this music back to people. Um, so uh, about a month and a half ago, I was in Israel. I was in the Jaffa flea market, and I happened on this stack of uh, Libyan records. Now, it's very hard to find Libyan pop music in general, uh, let alone uh, Libyan pop music by Jewish artists. And I found a number of fantastic discs. Uh, and I put some online with the hope that it would actually get back to Libya, right? I mean, these populations have been cut off for a long time. And here's a chance through the internet post-Arab Spring for this music to make its way back to Libya. And it did. Uh, so now you have Libyans in Libya listening to music by Jewish musicians produced in Israel. Um, so in that ways, I feel like I've already accomplished a lot. I'm speaking with some people about putting out um, some CD releases. Um, I think uh, the blog gets some traction, some really good traction, and I think uh, good, interesting people are interested. People are listening to it, um, but it could have a much wider, much wider distribution. And this music, it's not just important to Moroccan history, North African history, Israel's history. Uh, Jewish history. I mean, it's really it's really all encompassing. It tells a number of different important stories, and that's my that's my goal. So let's go out with one last song, and um, it's your pick. So I think for the next song, we're going to do something completely different. Uh, this is a song by Esther El Fasi. 
she started her musical career in Israel in Moroccan Arabic, uh, which is interesting. Some of the other musicians started their careers in North Africa. She started hers in Israel singing in Arabic. Um, this song, I often describe it as haunting. Um, it's a religious song, and she's singing about the unity or oneness of God, um, all in Arabic. It's called uh, Allah Huwa Wahid, uh, which is uh, God is, is one. Chris Silver, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Chris Silver runs the blog Jewish Morocco. You can find a link to his blog on our website, which is tabletmag.com. And on his blog, on Chris's blog, you can hear some of the songs we heard today in full and explore a lot of other songs that we didn't get a chance to listen to. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again. And do know that if you want to listen on the go, you can listen to Vox Tablet anywhere, anytime on your mobile device. Just go to stitcher.com. 